You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 294 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. I'm Stephen Seagraves, joined by Seth Miller and Fosma Moon. Hey, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Good evening. It's been a it's been a rough uh, few days, I, I think. Uh, just yes, hundred thousand coronavirus deaths and uh, George Floyd's murder. Uh, I think it's been a stressful week. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> and someone, and someone expected me to work in the middle of all that. I don't know. That. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and watch a, a, a launch of a rocket during all this. I don't know. <laughs> um, and full time work. Yeah, and full time work. So. I think the first thing we want to talk about is there's some actually cool news in the aviation world. Uh, Magna X uh, has helped build the first uh, or the largest all electric Cessna 28. Yeah. Kind of crazy. So this is this company, they did a similar thing on one of the smaller planes, a seaplane. Um, also, I think it may have also been a Cessna. Like, is there a 172 made into a seaplane? Otter, uh, like that? I don't know. Yeah. Well, the Sea Otter is not a Cessna. Cessna. Okay. No. Yeah. But anyways, um, I'm bad when you get to too small of a plane. Sorry. Uh, they, <laughs> they had a seaplane that they converted, and so they take out the gas motor or gas engine and put in an electric motor and then a bunch of batteries. Uh, and they did a flight, I want to say, back in November-ish on the seaplane. And then last week they did uh, – they put a 208 on land and had it fly – out, uh, out and about near Moses Lake. Wow. Yeah. So it did like a, I don't remember how long it was up for, but it was a significant period of time. This wasn't like a, you know, 30 seconds. Oh, look, we got off the ground. This was a real flight. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's super cool seeing that, uh, come to life. Just the electrification, um, obviously massive work yet still to do to get battery life, um, to where it can be yeah, a 30 minute test flight, get battery life to where they can fly longer periods and, you know, have room for passengers inside, not just batteries, but mm-hmm. it's, it's super cool to see this coming to life. Batteries batteries tend to be very dense and heavy. Are they heavier or lighter than fuel? I believe per like there's a there's a metric of like per horsepower or something. I'm not sure what the unit is that they measure the the power in. Um, they are heavier, um, but I'm not certain on that. Interesting. Yeah. Is there no concern about the volatility of the batteries? I'm sure there's lots of concerns. Uh, they are, they're not using the same lithium ion batteries, if I remember correctly. Like it's not um, the ones that Boeing put in the 787 that caught on fire. Uh, they have a different chemical makeup that's supposed to be better uh, and safer. But, but like, you know, like, I mean, in the realm of cars, right? Most fire departments around the country have been told if you get, get to Tesla that's on fire, just let it burn because you can't control it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, counterpoint, like, Jet A is also flammable. Uh, <laughs> it is, but it's more kerosene-based, so while it's flammable, it's a lower, longer heat? Yeah. No, that, that, absolutely. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I guess the, my thought on that would be if there's a, a plane catches fire with batteries in it, it also would try to make an emergency landing, same as a one with Jet A, and you tr- evacuate people. And I don't know how that, you know, I, I don't know what the risk factors are, if one's really much better or worse than the other. And it was a De Havilland DHC2 Beaver that was not Beaver, uh, not an converted. Yeah, was converted to uh, electric. Yeah, so th- it's just really cool to me to see that you know, especially when you think like Airbus and Rolls Royce were supposedly going to make the fourth at one of the engines on a BAE146 mm-hmm. electric, mm-hmm. an electric motor, and you know when they announced the project three or four years ago, it was supposed to fly this year and like a couple weeks ago, uh, post COVID crash, but not. Um, and too far into it, they were like, yeah, never mind. We're just not going to do that anymore. 
like pull, and, and it was you know they said they they were calling it a success like oh yeah we developed lots of new control systems and blah 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 but never got to the point that they were really ready to fly it um and sort of claimed victory even though they never did the thing they promised but these other smaller players are actually delivering on it i think it's pretty cool do you think um like for something like this like a 208 is a great like i, I think we talked about it on the last show uh that's a great cargo plane for little hops so between you know between little uh, little airports uh, to major airports where they can you know unload their cargo and be you know put on FedEx or something, um, this seems like a great use of an electric airplane, right? For forty five minute flights, if they can get it to that. Yeah, I mean, you'd probably want a round trip battery mm. in that case. Although maybe not. I mean, you've got. <laughs> I could argue, especially if you're just doing cargo, if they end up with a box that looks like that's got batteries in it that looks like all the other cargo. That's the last one off and the first one on. And then there's, you know, somewhere in the, in the office that you plug it in and you got it ready for tomorrow's flight. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, especially on a one a day kind of thing like that, you can almost argue it's better not to have to bring them all back to the hub. Um, but yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the seaplane was with Kenmore, I think. Yep. Kenmore. Yeah. yeah. Um, up in Pacific Northwest also. Um, and they're, they're looking at them for real passenger service, right? They want to be able there. They do a lot of short flights and, Electric isn't going to be ready for, you know, we're not going to have batteries capacity and density and whatnot ready to go longer flights for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the shorter ones, it seems like it's possible. And Foz, I guess that answers the question of which is denser from a power perspective. If the batteries would weigh more than the fuel would out in the wings, um, they aren't as good. Or maybe, or maybe just that you can't burn them off over time. Well, I mean, you're right. That's the thing, right? You don't get lighter as you go further. And that's one of the fundamental ways of how they manage airplanes to go further and further distances, right? Because they know it gets lighter as it moves forward. But the other challenge, you know, that I possibly would be, I'm not really sure you'd be able to stuff batteries in the wings. So then you're taking away fuselage space for them. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's some interesting things like I, I know that flight schools are actually looking a lot at electric planes um, because they're, you know, it's less failures, less moving parts, fewer moving parts, excuse me. Um, and so it, there's a there's a there's a little bit of safety there uh, for brand new pilots, which is a, a good thing. Yeah. So did you see that? Uh, not on the show notes. Sorry. That earlier this afternoon on Sunday, that today's Sunday. Yeah. Today's Sunday. Yeah. Uh, earlier on Sunday in the UK, one of the uh, a plane went down with the parachute thing. Oh, uh, uh, Cirrus went down and SR-22? Yeah. Huh. Huh. Parachute deployed. Wow. Yeah, passengers uh, reported safe. Pretty cool. Wow. I mean, it works. When it works, it works, right? Yeah. Sounds great. Anyway. Um, another story. Robo-tugs in Amsterdam. So it looks like uh, KLM is trialing uh, tugs to push back planes uh, to cut emissions. It's more than just pushback, and that's where the real difference is. So there's some electric tugs out there already that do pushback, and that's cool. Um, these are... Uh, TaxiBot, I think is the name of the, the company that the that KLM is the latest to trial. And it's not just KLM. It's, I think Schiphol is running the program um, and Corendion or something like that. It's one of the low-cost carriers over there that also did a trial run with it last month. Um, and that what's cool about it, there's a couple of nifty things. So it's electric that does the pushback and whatnot. It actually can pull the plane out towards the runway threshold. Oh, wow. So it handles a lot more of the taxi time um, yeah. to reduce fuel burn. And it can either be controlled from the tug with a driver or I guess you probably need a driver in it no matter what to get back after the airplane's done or, you know, says it you know, gets all the way out to the apron or to the threshold. But also, uh, it, apparently, when it's hooked up, the pilot can sort of override some of the controls. 
Interesting. And it's like four wheel independent steering, so it can almost strafe <laughs> as it needs to to like <laughs> to like to fully adjust the position of the plane. It's some there's some really neat things that it can do, but um, you know, expensive and have to be, make sense to buy it. So, so they they could theoretically you wouldn't even have to start your engines up until you're at the the threshold of the runway. Really, with this, wow. Assuming there's like a way for it. I mean, I, I keep thinking like there's got to be a, an escape or an exit path for it to get off the. Mm-hmm. Out of the way of the plane and get back. And usually, I mean, I don't know if it could switch to using like a uh, service road at that point, but yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Really neat. Some cool videos to watch on the, uh, the taxi bot website. KLM just had some stills, but it's a, uh, it's a neat project. And what's interesting about it also is like some uh, jet airways tried it in like 2013 or something like that somewhere in India. Like this is, they've been around for a long time um, and obviously constantly improving the product. But again, I don't know if it's battery life and things like that or, cost or something else that's keeping it from being fully adopted but it's we're not there yet yeah i mean because you know part of the thing with with taxiing out is planes uh right now a lot of a lot of uh, airlines to say fuel taxi with one engine yeah um and so to not have to use fuel at all i mean it really changes it would be better <laughs> yeah i mean it really changes the, the fuel consumption and things because i mean let's say you're at newark or jfk can you imagine just sitting there for an hour and a half when in you know congestion running on a single engine that's a, yeah. yeah it's a lot of fuel it's a lot of fuel yeah but you know, there's one aspect of it. Like while they're running the engines, they can the engines are running, so if something can go wrong. It gives more time for you to know something's failing. That's that's true. Yeah. Um, hopefully, uh, the pilots are well versed in single engine takeoffs, <laughs> if need be. <laughs> I, I, I would argue, Foz is probably thinking more about the like. Then we tried to spool up the second engine, and something failed. We need yeah. to get back out of line. But yeah. Or I mean, I've been on enough Airbus planes where um, the starter doesn't work. And you have to, <laughs> and they need to bring out the little cart to yeah, start yeah. the engines. Um, yeah, maybe we could put a jumper uh, on this thing because it's battery; it's electric cart, anyways. Did, did I tell you guys about my experience at Austin on a on an Airbus Alaska's Airbus planes? They plugged it into a gate that had a short, and it basically like fried the computer. It didn't fry it; it it uh, basically hard reset a bunch of stuff. And wow. they had to like unplug it and reboot the thing like six times. And I was like, well, do we really want to fly all this? Like, could we just not? I mean, six times is a lot, guys. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be like, yeah, my IT guy says after the third one, usually you walk away for a couple hours. Is that yeah, just let it sit, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I guess it can happen anywhere, Fuzz. <laughs> I, well, I remember sitting on a United 320 in San Francisco and the pilot coming on saying, well, we're having a little bit of a computer problem, so we have to control it, delete it. So, you know, we're going to unplug it and everything's going to go off. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to be on this flight right now. <laughs> it's not it's not like a reassuring thing. <laughs> I had one. We actually had an aborted takeoff a uh, long time ago now, uh, like on a CR7 or CR9 out of LaGuardia, where the like the wheel nose jerked to one side as they throttled up. Hmm. And the guy's like, yeah, that was a computer glitch. We're going to reboot it and try again. And we like pulled him. So we, we taxied up like he, they immediately cut the engines. We taxied up slowly, like to the next turn off, went around, came back. And I didn't notice the first time. The second time, I absolutely felt the plane jerk to the left. <laughs> and wow. yeah, but it, it's like, yeah, the computer reboot didn't work. So we're going to go ahead and just go back to the gate now. So, wow. you know, that was an exciting one. But, you know, not, <laughs> the, the reboots don't always work is what I'm saying. So. <laughs> There's a picture I saw recently, which was cracking me up, which was there was a picture of a box that's at Airbus and another picture that's at Boeing. And on the Airbus, there was a single button. On the Boeing, there's like 20 different buttons. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. I started cracking up. I'm like, yeah, it's a little unnerving. Funny, but unnerving. <laughs> oh, man. Um, what else we got here? Parker, Doug Parker, 
Scott Kirby, both uh, calling the questions about bankruptcy bankruptcy for either of their airlines uh, stupid. In not so many words, but yeah. yeah that, that's rich, right? Hey, listen, they're never going to lose money again. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think you lose a little of your credibility when. <laughs> I mean, what, what is what comment you had to the analysts that's so memorable? So what uh, what do you think? Like with Doug Parker, what is his motivation here? I mean, he's, I, we've we've kind of talked offline about the three majors, three major U.S. carriers, and you know, I think Foz has some uh, real concerns about Delta with all of their foreign investments. I feel like AA is just weak all around and United has some serious uh, issues when it comes to, they also have some foreign investments and they have some labor relation problems that they're going to be running up against in you know the coming months. Excuse me. And a pissed off customer base. And that, that too. Oh, I forgot about that. Sorry. <laughs> the minor little thing. Yeah. Yeah. So which of the three is worse off? Yes. <laughs> you know, I, it's, the bankruptcy comment is interesting. There's a lot of the investor community. There have been, you know, earnings calls and there was uh, one of those sort of investor day things. I don't remember which bank ran it, but, you know, all of these things keep happening. And it's at this point, there's a lot of questions of, are you going to have to file for bankruptcy? And we've seen airlines around the world do it. Uh, we haven't have seen a U.S. airline do it. Raven, although they were terribly poorly run and Miami Air was not poorly run, but it turns out just hanging on by a string and the lack of charter and sports destroyed them. Um, but you know, it's interesting to me to sort of see this, like, it has to be a legitimate question of, is this part of your business planning process? Is this something you're considering, or at least thinking might be part of the uh, game plan eventually? Because if you're an investor, you have to account for that potential. Um, I also understand why they would say, no, this is stupid. Of course, you're not going to do that because they want to keep the stock price up and keep access to commercial loans, right? The whole, if they, if they come out and say, I mean, yeah, if we run out of other money, we'll have to file for chapter 11. That's going to make people stop investing in them and stop loaning them money. And then they will run out of money. So sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. And let's not forget that, you know, their pay structure all gets altered drastically. Yeah. They, the bulk of their pay is in, is in stock, not cash. So this is why they're in the mess they're in today. Do you guys, I mean, do you guys think that uh, Kirby's comments around this are, um, is he kind of deflecting a little bit of the negative attitude that there is in the customer base towards United? Or is it kind of, as you said, Seth, more directed to just the investors to say, we're financially fine? I think it's more investor related because, I mean, on the one hand, I think it was Kirby's version of the story was like, bankruptcy is bad for the business. It's bad for investors. It's bad for staff. It's bad for customers. It's really bad for everybody. I'm Mm -hmm. slightly uh, less convinced that it's necessarily bad for passengers. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are occasion, you know, yes, it changes things, but like relatively speaking, the plane's still going to take off and land. It's still going to have vaguely similar. It depends on how hard they cut during a reorg and where the cuts come from, right? If it's just to, get out of some leases or deliveries and maybe to screw over the union that shouldn't affect passengers as much. Um, renegotiating labor contracts with the union will have a trickle down effect to passengers usually, especially if it's frontline st- staff, but, um, or quite frankly, maintenance, we've seen things yeah. go bad there yeah. too. Uh, but, you know, so I, so I'm, I don't know that it's truly bad for everyone other, you know, nearly as bad as it would be for investors who end up with pennies on the dollar. Mm-hmm. But, I, I certainly understand why they're saying it the way they are. I just, I also wouldn't dismiss it immediately as a stupid question, given that they are still burning t- tens of millions of dollars a day right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Like, yeah th- that has to stop at some point. And 
we don't know when traffic is really going to return. We don't know when passengers are going to start showing back up in volume. Well, I think more basic than that is, right, the bulk of the revenue for these airlines, the, the big three, comes from international long-haul premium cabin. Yeah. There's very little international long-haul right now. Yeah. Almost none. Yeah. Um, has has uh, Delta CEO Ed Baston said anything similar, or has he kind of remained quiet? I haven't seen him quoted on it. I also don't know that he's been asked. Mm, yeah. But, um, you know, I – I don't know. Of the three, I would say, yes, they lost money in the uh, foreign investments, but I think they've accounted for it on their cash flow on the books right now. Mm. And so it's not like it's future troubles for the company. Yeah. Um, so from a what can they survive thing, I don't think that needs to be necessarily considered. Yeah, I mean, because along those notes, right, I mean, uh, LATAM has filed for Chapter 11, correct? Yep. Um, and how does I mean, how does that impact Delta? And then we'll kind of talk more about LATAM and, and the specifics around that. Uh, the partnership is still moving forward. Okay. So the joint venture, they're still trying to make get off the ground. Delta obviously's ownership stake is affected. Yep. Um, but that was, you know, sort of buying their way into the partnership. Not necessarily. And yes, it would have been nice eventually for Delta to you know get a return on that. But I think longer term, the joint business is more important than the direct investment. Hmm. Um, but they're not taking some airplanes. I think Foz, you were talking about that earlier. Yeah, what's, yep. what's the story there, Foz? Uh, they, you know, they were supposed to take some planes from Latam from three fifties, and they actually just—I think this past week or was it last week—they paid Latam not to take them. And a decent amount of money too. It's like sixty something million. Yeah. I mean, is it kind of like a? I mean, to me, that sounds like a shell game of cash, right? Like Delta invests. Uh, then Delta says, we don't need these airplanes. And we know you're going through chapter 11 here. Here's some more money. Not, we don't want those planes, but, but they're, they didn't get any more equity. Okay. They can't. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's not just a foreign ownership rules thing from, uh, the country. Um, but the U S carriers, while they're accepting cares act funding are not allowed to invest in other airlines. Mm. So they can't put, like Delta can't put more money into Virgin Atlantic, even if it wants to, it can't put more money into Latam. And so I hadn't, you know, while you were starting to flesh out that theory, I, I sort of started thinking similarly on those lines. I hadn't thought about it before, but like, was this a way for Delta to, you know, site, you know, funnel some cash to the company rather than worrying about the planes themselves? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be, uh, but it sounds like it's, it wouldn't, it couldn't be very obvious or have to be very uh, under the table. Yeah, well, I mean, or an obvious previously established contract with a cancellation clause that they agreed to cancel now, and maybe they'll revisit later. Mm. But what's interesting is one of the things I was reading is LATAM's current market value at time of filing, the Chapter 11 filing, was less than just Delta's, uh, what Delta paid for their stake. Sure. So that's a pretty isn't, substantial amount of depreciation. Isn't Delta's value currently less than what Delta paid for LATAM? Uh, quite possibly, yes. <laughs> I mean, just putting that out there, it was maybe not quite that drastic, but it was there was big money involved, and the stocks have all depreciated significantly. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, you know, I do think it's I, the other thing about the airplanes, the three fifty. So, there's two parts of it that are funny to me. One is they were four planes that were returned by Qatar Airways mm-hmm. that were almost certainly going to be the Delta planes. So the idea that Delta was going to have to fly secondhand Qatar Airways planes is massively humorous to me. <laughs> but that's, um, a, that's a good point because in this last round, you know, the, uh, Qatar, Qatar was one of the people, that, one of the airlines that gave money to LATAM and their stake went up. Yep, they're debtor in possession finance. They're one of the debtor in possession financing. So the uh, question is, can they sway the Delta thing now? And you think they would try to not have Delta take the planes? No, I think they would try not to partner with Delta. Oh, I don't think that's going to be an issue. 
Um, they, they, I think that Akbar likes to poke at the bear, so to speak, but he knows where the money's at. He does, but there's a lot of spite there. Y- yeah, he knows where the money's at. <laughs> I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that his primary and only goal really is the money, and everything else is fun and games for him. Quite literally, he, he he jokes and plays and has fun, like teasing and whatever. But when he knows where the money is, and he makes the right move for the money every time. Okay. Um, but the other the other thing about the planes, just while we're talking about that a little bit, is that they are some of the older and earlier build three fifties. I mean, none of them are old old, but they're earlier build, and uh, the Delta routes that they're going for are longer and longer routes where hmm. they need aircraft that are the newer that have a higher maximum takeoff weight and max gross weight. Hmm. Uh, for increased range so i think and that's when we talked about this last week with the uh even with that they still need the cape town stop so um it sounds like also delta can't and the new 350s that delta's supposed to get next year i think um would be even better ones um in terms of capacity or range so it's it's also sounds to me like these were going to have to be a subfleet anyways and delta doesn't really need that right now and if it decides later it wants them it can always go back and get them Aren't the ones or that Delta already has some of these, the first generations, the first generation ones? The cup, I think like the first few are, and then some of the new deliveries coming as well as I thought some of the more recent deliveries just regularly had a higher, had a longer range. And it's sort of, it's a progressive thing. It's not like just max takeoff weight or max gross weight. There's something else involved in there, I think as well. So it is not just a, you know, jump from A to B kind of thing, but it's coming along. Right. But they already, but my, the point I was getting at, they already have the subfleet. Oh, uh, because some will be the higher range. Yes. And I mean, not a ton of their routes need the super long range. Like they're doing a bunch of stuff for right? Asia is where a lot of three fifties are going at um, Atlanta and Detroit to Asia. But the first gen should be no problem. Yes, I thought, I thought Delta was the airline of of subfleets. <laughs> Only when it comes to Boeing planes. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Oh, just so we're clear. <laughs> there was a comment about when they were talking about their fleet simplification and like retiring the MD eighty eights and nineties. Which, by the way, final flight Tuesday of the MD eighty eight. Yeah, and ninety. Wow, both those go away on June second. So by the time you're hearing this, they're gone. <laughs> uh, but they and they did final flights and still only sold half the seats. Wow! So even Av geeks aren't getting out there to get on them. No, no, no I mean they they capped capacity. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. No, definitely some. They're definitely filled with Av geeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there was a, sorry, there was a comment at some point in all of that about how like with the planes they had, they were at something in like the twenties for sub subtypes and configurations. It's some obscene number. It was ridiculous. Well, I mean they have like four different versions of the seven fifty seven. So. No, they they had like <laughs> thirteen versions after the merger. <laughs> That's true. Man. You never knew which one you were going to get. So no, neither, neither did they. <laughs> oh, I'm sure Stefan will will give us a hard time about Delta 752s because I'm sure he loves them. So, <laughs> um, BAEC, what is this? BAEC is is doing some arbitration stuff. What is this? Executive uh, club. Executive club. Yeah, they randomly last week sent out a note to members saying, "Oh, by the way, we've changed our terms and conditions. You can no longer sue us yeah. uh, in the United States or Canada." Yeah, I was going to say U.S. and Canada, not all members. So, if you have a problem with your executive club membership and you reside in the United States or Canada, uh, you can't sue them to to resolve that issue. Right. There was some thought that this might be because of the class action lawsuit around fuel surcharges a few years ago. They always say that the other line item and the other clarification is you can't join a class action against them either. So, Wow. That seems very uh, specific and succinct. 
<laughs> I mean, is that how is that even? I didn't know that you could actually do that. Why, why don't all companies do this? <laughs> Most do, but but people still get sued. Yes. So what's what's the what's the deal? Explain, Ex- Eli Five, me Seth. Explain like I'm five. I've never heard that acronym that way. That's interesting. I like it. Um, <laughs> how does that work? Hell if I know. Um, <laughs> I am not a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> we know lawyers, but uh, they're not on the show. So. No. Um, I, I, I think in a lot of cases, you file a suit and it does get removed to arbitration, though. Um, okay. There are, I mean, there's, yeah, there's, I don't know. I, I, to me, it just feels like kicking you while you're down. Like, now, is is this the best time to be making more bad changes or ne- slightly negative changes to programs? And I guess the answer is, in my mind, actually, the answer is yes. As long as everybody is reconsidering everything anyways, you may as well get it out there. I think it's, it may not seem like the right thing to do because you got to be, you know, keep all your customers and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's the more sort of upstanding upfront way to go about it. It's like, Hey, when you come back, we, we appreciate you've been loyal to us. This is what it's going to look like when you come back. If you don't want to do that, now's a good time to make another plan. Yeah. But I mean, I think in the age of Alex Cruz and Willie Walsh, they've done very little for the customer. Oh yeah. Right. Like they, they see no value in the customer. And as they continue to build up Heathrow into more and more of a fortress hub, they have really no reason to even care. I mean, I, I will say we've got friends of this show and I have family members that fly BA and swear by BA. Um, it's very interesting. The, you know, it's much like the old United, right? If you have status and you can sit in the premium cabin, you'll actually have a really good experience. Mm. <laughs> you have a chance of having a very good experience. I mean, I honestly have never had a bad experience on BA. They've always been hospitable. Even when they screw up, they generally take care of you. Uh, there's definitely sometimes when they don't, but that's more of an outlier. Yeah. But Executive Club has been like a sore spot for them for quite some time. Mm. I guess my in my ver- my take on the old B- on the old United and similarly BA is like United. You had a much better chance of getting a ten on a one to ten scale of an experience, but you also had a, a higher chance of getting a three or four. Whereas a more boring airline, you were just always at a seven, like a five to seven range, kind of mm. a narrower range versus a wider range, but it could go low also. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, like how does consumer protection like line up with this? Like if you actually have a, you're just gonna have to go to arbitration, I guess is the answer is if you want to get something resolved, you have to go to arbitration. Or I guess file DOT claims. Yeah. I mean, I guess you still have that outlet. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, at this point, I also, honestly also think BA is more worried about trying to deal with firing half their staff, but, um, mm-hmm. then worrying about the customer thing, which I don't know. I'm, I'm also torn on that situation. Like the yeah, way that they seem to be approached I don't. I don't know all the details, so my explanation is going to be very brief and biased and stupid. Um, okay. But they are, as I understand it, uh, trying to. They have had split crew bases for some time. Um, they called it worldwide and something else. So it was very much what AA did with the MD80s, where they had different tiers. They had a senior base, but then they brought in different bases at lower pay. But then they there's a Europe, there's a mix, there's worldwide, and there's Europe. I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's just really three different pay, uh, pay tiers. Yeah. So they're trying to shut down the highest of the pay tiers and then telling those people that they can reapply for jobs in the lower base um, and the lower pay scale base. Uh, it's shitty to be certain. Um, the counterpoint to that and the part of this that I have that I struggle with is the airline has to be smaller. Mm-hmm. It is going to fly fewer flights. It's going to carry fewer people. It's going to have fewer planes. And so, and this is for all the airlines, like it sucks to have to lay off 30% of your, or to cull 30, you know, reduce staffing by 30%. Um, at the same time, 
it's not rational to expect that the staff can remain employed if there's 30% less business. Mm-hmm. So how you approach that, and there are absolutely multiple ways to approach it. And I'm not saying BA is doing it right or any of the other airlines are doing it right or wrong, but uh, there has to be a way that they can come up with any, oh, there has to be a reasonable way to, for even the unions to accept like, no jobs have to be had. Like we don't have enough work for all these people. Um, I don't know. That's, it gets a little wonky to me when we start talking like, you know, oh, well, they took bailout money. They shouldn't be able to fire anybody ever. Like that, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Did BA get bailout money? BA did not. So that's, I mean, but it sort of carries over to some of the conversations in the U.S. also. Yeah. I mean, Lufty's getting a bailout, right? And Nine billion finally, euro. And they finally agreed to cede some slots at Frankfurt and Munich. Yeah. Which is interesting. It's like, it sounds like it's only 24 slot pairs, which I know is a lot, for, but like also doesn't seem like it's that much to me. Doesn't seem like a lot, no. I honestly like, hadn't. I, like I had no idea that eight planes. I had no idea that uh, Frankfurt was actually slot controlled based on my flying in and out of there. <laughs> well, for for flights, yes, but not gates. Yeah, yeah. Gates are first come, first serve. Okay. <laughs> well, it just always feels like the plate the place is too crowded all the time. <laughs> yeah, and and you don't really have work to worry about gates, so there's plenty of hard stand space for us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're gonna drive you out to on a on a bus anyway. Even if you land on a Lufthansa flight and you taxi to a gate, they'll put you on a bus. So just just ask our friend Steve. <laughs> That's because they don't want you to miss out on the hard stand experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Canadian complaints to the DOT. What's so, this about, Seth? I'm sort of picking back up on the my comment earlier about if you don't like what happens with the executive club, I guess you can file a complaint. Um, the, there's been a big problem in Canada with the Canadian Airlines not providing refunds for canceled flights um, around COVID-19, but just in general. Um, and so the Canadian government came out and said, oh, actually, yeah, you're right. Maybe vouchers are acceptable. Um and screwed passengers in that way. The U.S. government has said, no, you have to provide refunds if you cancel the flight. Uh, if the passenger chooses to cancel, it's different. But if the airline cancels the flight, then the passenger has to, excuse me, the airline has to provide a refund. And apparently uh, WestJet and Air Canada aren't doing a great job of that. And so in the last few weeks, there's been a number of people as individuals. So, you know, and I'm thinking we all have done it at one point or another. You can go to like the DOT website and click through the form and file a complaint. Um, Those complaints, I don't want to say are non-binding, but they're like semi complaints. They're partial, like they're not real uh, in some ways, right? The the DOT forwards it to the airline. The airline has to get back to you. And all that, but all the DOT does is log it as a statistic of number of complaints filed and the category that the complaint is in. If the airline solves it, they solve it. If they don't, they don't. And the DOT has no enforcement obligation or capacity. And that's so it's, they're kind of toothless. Um, it also turns out that people can just file a new DOT docket, like a complaint into the docket, which is far more serious. And it involves basically you like fill out a, a far more formal looking form. It reads like a legal affidavit or something. And, you know, the whereas and therefore kind of BS. Um, but it gets published publicly (laughs) like, yeah. And so like uh, among the ones I've read is like people's booking details and like PNRs and stuff. But of course these are all canceled flights. So it doesn't really matter. Um, But people have started doing this now. And a few of them are doing it just as individuals. Uh, There was one guy who filed a claim against United. This isn't Canadian, but uh, who filed a claim against United claiming that his flight was like, they changed the flight number. And so that qualified as a cancellation. And so he was due a full refund. And also they changed the time and a few other things. and United didn't respond. And so now he said, well, he filed like a follow-up saying they had 15 days. They didn't respond. And the DOT now is obligated to enforce uh, 
my a, a summary judgment in my favor. And in his in his request, he also asks that uh, the DOT require United to go search its records for anyone else that has been similarly aggrieved and force them to uh, be accommodated as well. Um, the Canadian ones are even more interesting because there's been a couple of passengers, similar situation. My flight was canceled. Air Canada or whoever didn't refund me my money, but it was a flight tour from the United States. So U.S. laws apply. Um, U.S. DOT, please enforce uh, your rules against Air Canada in the appropriate manner. And presumably, if Air Canada didn't comply, they could be stopped from flying to the U.S. Um, so, you know, big deal. Um, one guy actually filed on behalf of as a third party with no tickets pending, just filing a blanket Hi, we'd like you to clean this shit up. Thank you, DOT. Go to work. Claim. <laughs> um, his name's Naim, and I actually I emailed him trying to figure out, you know, what his motivation is. He's like, no, just, just, uh, just filed. I don't have any tickets. Just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's going to be really interesting to me. Air Canada did respond. I don't think it was to him. I think it was to a specific filing uh, the other day, saying. Uh, we do intend to uh, respond to this claim. Our lawyers are involved. We need a few extra days to respond, to go through our records and figure out what happened. And then they got like an extension on the 15 day rule or for response. Um, but what's going to be, it's going to be interesting is if this proves to be the way people get the refunds, I, you know, if the third party, you know, single claim, the guy's basically asking like for the DOT to call someone at Air Canada and say, no, no guys, really you have to do this or you're in trouble um, and force them to act. That would be a good outcome I would say if that doesn't work, but they ever respond to the individuals who were actually holding tickets, if this becomes a thing where like the docket gets jammed with all these filings, it's going to change the way the DOT has to process everything and like be a total mess. Hmm. And again, probably still good for the consumer. And so I'm, I support it, but also what a mess. But they can prevent this, right? They basically have said, we're not going to enforce this where you need to refund, but we're not going to enforce it. If they just start enforcing it, yes, it no longer be, it, it clears up this mess. I believe that's accurate, yes. I mean, Air Canada is just, you know, while we all have friends working there, it's just a generally abysmal airline right now. I have an open ticket with them, and so you can't get through to them on the phones. So I reached out to their Twitter team. I shared my details. And like, and they're like, well, you have two tic- two years. I'm like, two years from when? <laughs> like, they're like, well, we don't know. And we went in circles, and they finally said, you need to call our reservations department. They can look at this. I'm like, this is useless. Like, I can't get through on the phones. This is why you guys are supposed to be here, but you're also not helpful here. (laughs) Oops. Yeah. Anyway, I think these DOT complaints are certainly amusing. Um, I also, partly because I have a system that monitors the DOT filing, so I get alerts when they come through. And so my days are spent getting emails and, you know, messages telling me that these things are happening, and I find that amusing. (laughs) Uh... So, in kind of cool news, SpaceX uh, had a successful launch uh, this yesterday, Saturday, um, and put two men in space from U.S. soil for the first time in what nine years? Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty awesome. Uh, what's your take on this, Seth? I mean, you were—I think you were pretty stoked about the whole thing. I am. I, I'm a big fan of rocket launches, uh, except for the part where there are hugely inefficient ways to move people around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, it's very cool. The technology involved in it, not only did they put them into space, they actually, uh, earlier Sunday afternoon, they docked with the International Space Station. They're spending a day or two there, and then they're coming home. Uh, and they'll splash down sometime this week. Uh, so, like, the, the, the cool factor for pulling it off is off the charts. The watching a SpaceX launch... Um, on it's one of the few times I'd say it's almost better on you know, on TV on online than it is in real life. And I love rocket launches, but the SpaceX, the production value that they put into those broadcasts mm-hmm. is so good and so high. And I, I enjoy it, but I also think it really is going to help 
change the tone around space travel and getting people interested in that sort of thing from a younger generation and help boost the sort of profile of space again, uh, mm-hmm. similar to how it, it was in the late sixties, early seventies when it was like special again. Yeah. Um, and to a lesser extent when the shuttle was launching regularly, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's, it was really cool. Um, I just, every time I see a rocket go up, I think about how much kerosene is burned and how much <laughs> is burned. And like we start, we you hear people talking about, you know, suborbital flights or orbital flights for high speed travel around the, around the globe and things like that. And I just, it's, I can't justify the idea of like supersonic travel returning really because mm-hmm. it's just the fuel burn per passenger mile is so much higher. And whether it's Virgin Galactic or this or something else, it's like so much worse. And to hear people say, oh, well, we'll be able to put heavy industry mining and stuff into space. And so we won't affect Earth anymore with it. I want to be like the, the, the fuel required to move things off of Earth to get there mm-hmm. and to move shit back and forth is probably going to be worse than just doing it here. Like just, I don't know, the the whole goal is to reduce emissions and protect the environment. So we're going to move that stuff off of Earth, except moving it off of Earth is going to accelerate the problems because we have to burn so much more quickly to get there. Yeah. And you have to produce, that. You have to produce that fuel and the chemicals and everything that's needed um, around rockets. So, yeah. It's, it's, and I don't want to be a Debbie Downer because, you know, I miss, I miss Concord. I'd love to go to space or suborbital at least, but uh, I don't know. I think it's sort of, it's, I don't think we meant to do it this way, but an interesting bookend for uh, an episode starting with, cool electrification stuff happening and how the world's getting, you know, how aviation is getting slightly greener in a couple of ways and finishing with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they, you know, just uh, SpaceX has a facility in Texas and they just had a massive explosion there too. Yes. Uh, that's their, I forget what they're calling it. It's like the jumbo jump. It's not even the BFR, which was like the supersized Falcon. Um, this is a ridiculously large, this is supposed to sort of be the heavy lifter one that's going to like create a base in space or, you know, start feeding, uh, building up capacity to feed Mars and push stuff out there. Um, and super hard. That is the other thing is like the, the Falcon nine is new technology and it's a very cool approach, but it's more or less in the, it, it was in the existing size range, right? It was stuff mm. that had been done before this new one, um, is way bigger. And so did it, it had a it had an explosion on launch or, or? they've been doing test test launches like can it get fifty feet off the ground kind of thing um, mm-hmm. and I think it, again this one was even like it failed during fueling or something oh wow um, it, but this is like the fourth one or the fourth try and they, none of them have gone right so um, and listen rockets blow up like it, getting it right is very hard and they continue to pour money into it and pour work into it and I don't want to say that like they're incompetent or anything um, far from it. But I mean, it's kind of like what you explained to me. We were kind of chatting on, you know, chat app and you said, you know, it's not the Soyuz, you know, like this right. rockets are hard, but it's, it, this isn't the Soyuz and it's, that's a good thing. Right. Um, so it's, uh, give, it's give really a little, con- give a little context on that comment. Like give it, give oh, a little bit of, little yeah. Bit. I mean, my comment there was, and that was about like, you know, is that was about this, the risk of getting on a brand new product. Yeah. Like, and the, the thing about this is someone's, I, someone said that this is the first, it's a brand new rocket for SpaceX to be doing this kind of thing with. And it's like, yes and no. The The Dragon module is new, but only sort of. They've had cargo versions of the Dragon module for a while. This is the first crew one, um, but they have had cargo versions. And the Falcon 9 rocket, the underlying sort of booster and whatnot, isn't new. It's far from it. So It's been around since like the 70s and 80s, right? No, 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 no. Falcon is new. I mean, okay. this decade, but... That's what all the other SpaceX launches basically okay. have been Falcon Nine. So they've done it a lot a few times. Yeah. They, they've they've got certain first stages that they've launched three times now. Mm. Right? That's, that's honestly that's the other really cool thing. And I know it like it's supposed to bring the cost down significantly. We'll see if it how much that happens. But uh, they, ca- they 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 can catch 
the rocket on a ship out at sea in slightly rough water is amazing to me. And, and so did, did, they, did that happen for this, for this launch? Yep. That yep. is awesome. Yeah. That's they brought, really- the, they, they brought the first stage back. Um, so it's, yeah, the, the whole, the, the stuff that they're doing is from a pure science perspective to me, super, super cool. Um, the whole, we need to move like society to Mars thing. I think that's a vanity play and shows just how crazy Musk is. And maybe his money would be better spent doing almost anything else. But, uh, well, I think that's where my comment, my comment about the spacesuits, like it's, it, yeah. they, the spacesuits come across as something that you would see or read about in a, in a futuristic space novel. They, the yeah. It, it, they didn't come across as, Oh, this is the latest and greatest technology. I mean, they look like ill fitting uh, boxes. <laughs> if I can put it any other way, really. Um, but not so, yeah. the like super weird clunky suits of the shuttle era. Yeah, exactly. It, it's a strange. And then I see like all the, the, the helpers, the, the workers helping to get these guys strapped in, dressed in what looks like star Wars villain outfits. Um, it was a little disconcerting. Yeah, It's, it's, it's all about the brand. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's like what you're saying about Musk is he's got some big dreams for where SpaceX goes and some like vision for how that, what that looks like. Um, and then there's like the reality application of, of this technology. And I think that the reality is like somewhere in the middle of, of shuttle technology and where Musk's vision is. Yeah. So, so and, and I, I mean, there's also a question of what's the reality of the demand. Like, okay, this, I think they said these are 55 million a seat to get to the space, space station. Mm-hmm. And it was 80 million a seat with the Russians. So huge savings, but have, and, and Boeing is still building their version of it with the, other rocket and everything else. So like there's going to be competition in this and that, but like how often are we going to need to do this? And is it really worth, what's the capital to get to that point? And is SpaceX claiming, you know, it's the $55 million number. Could they run that indefinitely or not? Or is that like a money, a loss leader for something else? I mean, the amount of advertising he got for, for uh, Tesla and everything else as part of this deal is obscene. So how much, how many of those flights does Steven need to take to get global services? Well, I, I could. No, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I think is, it for answer- Steven or, is it for Steven or for someone who mostly flies ERJs? That's all I want to know. <laughs> oh, oh, I think I think the answer is Steven will never get GS at this rate. Um, so you cheat on United. That's why. Yeah, that's true. So I, I, one last thing about space. If if you guys haven't watched Space Force yet, uh, I, I recommend it. Uh, the first episode had me rolling. So it's on Netflix. Um, it's pretty hysterical and sad that it's kind of coming true. So <laughs> anyway, um, any other, any other topics you guys want to talk about? I'm good. No, sweet. Well, to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. Um, you can find us on Twitter at dots lines, more dots, more lines.com. Leave a comment, uh, ask some questions. We'd love to hear from you uh, until next time. Happy travels. Take care. See you later.